Hi everyone, welcome at Wavec. Today with Joseph Miller, a serial founder and scientist. And as you can see, Ernesto is already super excited for this episode because we were talking about all things, you know, from robotics to his entrepreneurial journey to data, privacy, ownership to all sorts of crazy stuff. And, you know, if you watch this episode, you will see that I was just, you know, I didn't know what to say sometimes. So it's really an exciting episode and super authentic. I love Joe. He's just a great guy. And yeah, enjoy the episode. Wave Act, the web-free software company that understands what you want. Hi, man. Uh, thanks for taking the time. It's really, really a pleasure uh, talking with you again. And yeah. I will just throw the first question at you. And as most of the viewers already can see in the description, you have founded many companies in your life. And the first thing that I'm definitely sure most of us would be curious about is what would you tell your younger self when you were just starting out with your entrepreneurial journey? <laughs> Uh, my instinct was to answer like, don't do it, but that would be a total lie. I've had a, I've had a great time. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I, I mean, it, entrepreneurship is a really interesting, unique, like life trajectory, right? It's, um, it's a, it's a little bit, um, it, it, it's very unique in a sense, like it's very nonlinear, right? So if you're the type of person that really enjoys that sort of nonlinear linearity to your life, like I do, um, then it's really the only thing you could do, right? So it's, uh, it is, is, you know, diving into a new domain is like a, basically impossible in a normal career trajectory. Whereas in entrepreneurship, it's sort of like, that's, that's sort of what you do. You move from one business to another, you know, I've had a board game company and a enterprise software company and a web three company, um, a hedge fund, like all these random things that are seemingly random, but the, 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 like backbone of that is sort of a, a curiosity, a passion to solve problems, um, you know, uh, just trying to do something new, right? Trying to do something new and meaningful and exciting. And um, I like to say, like, live as many different lives as you can, right? So, um, so I will, I would tell myself, my younger self that you get all of that, that indeed, that is actually true, you do actually get all of that. Um, and then I would probably give myself the warning that like, um, so while all of that is the upside, the downsides are very feast and famine, right? Um, like when things are working, it's sort of when it's rain and pours type of thing. And that's for the good and the bad. Um, and there's just like, you know, the crises come from anywhere. So there's just no, there's really no security in, in, in that sort of, um, like life trajectory. There's just no security if you're, if you're not building upon, um, you know, a stable sort of thing. You're always trying to do something new. It's just, it's just a fragile way uh, of existing really, uh, which gives it, which makes it exciting, but also, you know, that it, frail. So uh, I'd probably tell myself to like, um, you know, have better risk management, um, you know, decision-making when I was younger. Um, I think I could have like capitalized on a lot more of the opportunities that I had. Um, but you know, live and learn that way. Well, sounds to me like there were a lot of, of course, a lot of ups, but also a lot of downs. Um, was there a moment where you thought, ah, well, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if, uh, if this is going to work out. I mean, in like every single company, there are multiple moments like that. And then, um, and then there, it's very bipolar, right? It's very <laughs> like one moment you're like, you're like manic and it's, everything is just exciting and, and, and all full of opportunity and it's all working and it's humming along. And then literally just out of nowhere or the next moment or something, you know, happens in the global economy that has nothing to do with you. Um, uh, it just, it can change everything. And so, um, you know, there's a great study. I forget, I forget who did it. I think it was like a, a HBS study that I read a long time ago um, that basically followed a bunch of entrepreneurs for 10 years or whatever. And it basically found that the number one predicting factor of success for these companies were the things that didn't happen to them. So it's in some sense, it's like you just 
a, it's like being the last soldier on the battlefield that you just didn't get shot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that has almost nothing to do with you. Um, so most of the danger is like things you, you don't really actually have a ton of control over. Um, now, having said that, like you succeed. So if you succeed by by sort of surviving in that sense, then the name of the game is to like make decisions that allow you to keep playing right? It's like playing poker or something like that. It's like, you just got to keep being in the game because you're waiting for opportunities. You're looking for, um, you know, a little break in the window to be able to, to be able to uh, uh, capitalize on. And, um, and if you're not in the game, you, you, you won't be able to, you won't be able to play. Right. So just, that's what I say about this risk management is like really understanding that like, that is a big, big part of, of just trying to build anything, trying to do something difficult is um, it's like people make a big part of the grit totally necessary but the grit won't matter if you can't play right <laughs> so you got to survive you got to like live long enough for the opportunities to hit and um and you know avoid and hopefully you get lucky and you can avoid some of these things that you know have nothing to do with you yeah i've i've seen uh, not not sure if it was a study but uh i think a couple of entrepreneurs in silicon valley or something like that and if they survived over 10 years, they all have been in some way been successful, you know, like right. it's just persistence and resilience and keeping going and survivorship bias. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that like the, you know, there, there's, there's, there's not a single company that has just like worked without, without those existential moments. Right. Um, I mean, Vivin was is a in all in all regards like an unbelievably successful company. It's you know we raised our first round in 2019, great time. Uh, you know the next few years was just amazing. But then you have 2022 and this global macro space. It's a SaaS company, very sensitive to the global macro uh, uh, environment, and um, and like SaaS as a whole, as a whole sector was really brutalized. Right, so. Um, you know, you go from these like really, really highs and and feeling like, oh, we we've really got something to like a hard wake up call, like, oh, business is business. And like, you know, there's there's really no silver bullets to anything. Like you gotta block and tackle, you gotta execute well, um, you gotta manage your cash flow well, you gotta be prepared for these like unforeseen events or changes in in, in trends and in the markets that um that you're really sensitive to. And and when everything is working, it's really hard to know that right it's it feels like it's it, the, the best place that that happens is is in the finance space is in the hedge fund when you're really like when you're trading and you're just crushing it and it's like really working well like you think you have something right like <laughs> you think i am a genius i have figured out like you know the 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 secrets to the market and um and that's like the the bitch about statistics man is that uh you know there's lots of strings uh if you play enough hands like you'll have lots of strings where it just looks like you know you're you're a god like you're untouched similarly though the opposite side of that we're like man i'm having an unbelievable run of bad luck and like it you need the balance between uh, being able to say like oh when it's going great you're not as good as you think you are but when it's bad you're not as bad as you think you are and um, luck plays a big parts of this. And you've got to be able to reason about it statistically and say like, okay, should I keep going? Um, or do I have something systematically breaking here? That's a great point. Uh, someone told me, I think a few years ago, the ups are getting higher and the downs are getting lower. <laughs> yeah, some volatility there for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but l looking at your companies, uh, what was one of the most crushing experiences for you so far if you want to share that of course oh man the most crushing experience um there's so many <laughs> <laughs> we have time i mean i think um it's it, it's actually it's actually not true like there's not that many for me um like there's a lot of these companies like have not worked or have not you know succeeded the way i hope they would but um that, i mean I, I it's like cliche but like those failures are they're like 
trophies to me, right? Like they're, it's not, it doesn't feel, when you're doing something truly new, when you're really trying to do, even if it's new to you, right? It's not, it doesn't mean new to the whole world. It's just new to you. It's really hard to, uh, to fail in some sense. Like you can run out of money, you can, the company has to go bankrupt or whatever, but it's like the experience of the whole process is sort of just uh, like a river. It just kind of flows. Right. So it's not like, there's not really a good or bad type of aspect to like the quote unquote failure or um, success of things. Um, I would say the hardest thing, like the, the, like the, the darkest I have felt about the thing is in, is in finance where, you know, um, when you're trying to, because like battery is a, is, you know, systematic um, FX trading fund. And um, it truly is soup to nuts autonomous. That was sort of the thing. Like I had a bunch of like holy grail properties I wanted to build into a hedge fund. Um, one was that it has to have short-term trading, but not like high frequency, not like intra-second trading. It's not trying to like skim things or anything. It's like it has to have a view, but it has to only hold the trade for a day. It can't trade over the weekend. So you can't like exploit, you know, interest rate changes or whatever. Um, like it is truly a noise trading system. It's like if, it, you know, it should be in theory impossible if the market was efficient, but clearly it's not efficient. Otherwise this would be impossible. But there are many, many times when I thought, you know, I've been building this for four years and, um, and for the first two years, especially, um, there were many, many times where I thought I got it and then realized that it, it like, uh, there's foreknowledge here or leaked here, data leak here or whatever. And the, the whipsaw effect of that is brutal, especially when you have this like haunting feeling that like maybe the markets are efficient, you know, and, uh, and, and it's hard to hold conviction, um, you know, on, on, on this kind of roller coaster swing. And, you know, I've been riding that roller coaster for years and that is, really really painful that can be very painful at sometimes because it feels you feel really stupid um a lot of times and especially if you're like this is another thing a lot about uh you know i would say to my younger self like when you're when you're launching companies if you're an entrepreneur like you're sort of um arrogantly optimistic like it's almost like a necessary but not sufficient condition to succeed as an entrepreneur is like you you kind of gotta think you're really special in the face of extremely daunting probabilities that you're going to succeed right and and so for anybody to go do it you sort of have to think like i'm i'm that good right? <laughs> which is very very arrogant to say but also you've got to be able to sell right and so being enthusiastic about what you're trying to do and excited about like the 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 way you see the world and the way you think the world should change or whatever it is you're trying to do is um is a big part of it too so Every, you know, Thanksgiving, you go to your in-laws or whatever, and, and they ask you what you're doing, and you come with the same, like, fervor and excitement about your latest idea, and then it doesn't work, right? And then it, and then you're, oh, I got it, and then it doesn't work. And it's like, for everybody that's not an entrepreneur that doesn't viscerally understand, like, why somebody would stick through that, you look super stupid. And also, like, you know, um, possibly unstable. <laughs> you kind of look like somebody that is like, oh, do I really want my daughter, you know, with this person or whatever? <laughs> um, like, is this guy going to make it? Um, you know, fortunately, I've, I've had uh, a lot of support from everybody around me. But, like, that is a feeling that is real. Like, everything looks, you look delusional until something works, right? So, um so it's very, it can be very isolating, it can be very lonely that way. And then it's just a grind, man. It's just like, it's tiring. It's tiring to continually fool yourself, right? Uh, they're like, there's a great quote, I forget who it is. It's, um, it, it was, I think it was a physicist, but it was like the first, it might've been Feynman or somebody, but it was like, the first rule is don't fool yourself. And then the second rule is that you're the easiest to fool. So like, that is a very good principle to live by. <laughs> when thinking about that that gets me curious you have to be op optimistic of course you have to be as you uh, termed it flipped it coined it arrogant in some way right to think that you are superior over all others to make this work mm -hmm. which of course uh there's this thing superiority uh, complex basically that most entrepreneurs have in common, right? Uh, from what I've seen so far. And I'm just wondering, when you have multiple companies in a 
after one another don't you lose that at some point because you get I wouldn't say more <laughs> you realistic. Fail so many times? <laughs> no, uh, more, more in terms of you you understand the likelihood of a, achievements much better, yeah. you know. Don't that that's just my thought a little bit that you get more yeah, realistic. I think, I think that like you can like anybody that knows me would not um ascribe me like as a humble person like it's not one of my strengths right <laughs> um but like i there is a there is a a like a little you know uh um fraction of humility that i think that has been pounded into me um but mostly just because like you fail so much that if you sampled my startup history it looks like the distribution looks like the normal distribution it's like yeah you 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 have mostly failures but you have some successes and um and that's what the world looks like right so it's like you're you sort of recognize that yeah every when you're trying to do hard things you're going to fail at them if if you had a perfect success record like you're probably not trying you're doing hard enough things like if things are just a slam dunks all the time like that's not uh you're, it's not very hard so um so i think that like putting all of that into perspective just gives you a little bit more of a comfortability with failure a comfortability with like the probabilities of success and um and i think that people you start your mind starts to go less from like oh i'm the thing that makes it special to more like um you know i have a process that allows me to circumnavigate myself right like i can get around my weaknesses and i and i know that i have these weaknesses and these things have led me to increase my probability of failure in the past so now i can get around them right like i used to have a very strong disposition to want to do everything myself and um like design and the the, the engineering and the leadership and the everything right and it's just a stupid way of behaving. Like, uh, one, I'm not the best at all of those things. I'm not the best at really any of those things. Um, and then, and, and two, like, it just, you can't do as much. You just can't, you can't do as much. And so it doesn't make, it's like literally just doesn't make sense to do that, to live that way. The only why, the only reason you would do that is for an ego, but even that it doesn't serve your ego because you can't do as much. So it, it, it's a little bit silly, but but going back to this thing of saying like, you know, um, like the humility is comes in the rec the realization that I think that you have to survive. And a lot of it is just not up to you. And so you can be the greatest guy in the world. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, you're if you're on the front lines, charging the beaches like stray bullets are not <laughs> have nothing to do with your talent or skill or anything. Right. So it, it, a lot of it is just luck and the realization that like you win by playing a lot of hands, right? So you got to just keep playing the game. As soon as you stop playing the game, then you've lost. But as long as you're playing, as long as you're at the table, like you have a chance. That's a great mission. If I could ask you for one single favor, it would be that you hit subscribe onto this channel because it helps our channel more than you can imagine. And, you know, the bigger the channel gets, the bigger the guests get. So thank you very much for watching and... Let's continue with the episode. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Um, I think there's also this saying, if you look back one year and you don't think, oh, like uh, I'm embarrassed what I said, how I expressed myself, you know, all these kind of things, or what I knew or how I viewed the world, then you are not really growing, right? Yeah. And yeah, just... Let me go one step uh, towards when you spoke about uh, learn also about your companies. The latest venture of yours was Quiver, and ba basically a social validation protocol, identity, uh, a web free project uh, to some extent as well or huge extent. And I'm just wondering, since it's the last venture that you act actively engaged in so far. What were, were some of your key learnings you got out from that specific project? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so, uh, so I love Quiver. Um, there, I, there's a lot of things I really love about this company. Um, specifically, I thought, well, one, I have to give you know kudos to the co-founders, uh, Ray and Vinny. Um, we've built a lot of things together. And it's really fun to build things with people that you've done this before with. 
And the reason is because the processes you guys want to go through are similar. And so you agree upon how you should chart uncharted territory, right? And um, that's a really valuable aspect with your co-founders is like the agreement, not just on, you know, you don't have to agree on like where you are trying to get to, um, but you should agree on like how you are going to go about getting places. And, um, and that's like really, really important. And so like Quipper is an interesting company because we, we sort of raised the money, the seed round in like the hype of, um, of, you know, the whole bull market and all of this. And, um, and we wanted to do something really big and, and really difficult. And I would say like, that is the biggest thing I've lesson learned is that that is actually, it, it, it was very big and very difficult. <laughs> um, like, and you know, Quipper is about trying to create a home for people's like real identity. Right. So I used to say, like, you know, uh, when you go to a bar or you go to a, a book club or whatever you might go to and you meet new people, how do you engage with them as humans? Like you engage, like you ask them, you know, what's their name and whatever. But then you ask them, like, what do they do? What it motivates them? Like, what you know, what uh, hobbies? What are the, like, I want to know what this person's like. And um, I rarely ask any of the things that are like on a typical social media profile. Right. Like what is on your Instagram is almost, I mean, antithetical to like what, what I'm trying to say. It's like that is not at all who people are like that is probably that's part of the problem is that like uh, most social media sites, they're just not they're not authentic in any way that doesn't represent anybody um, at, at all. I can see a whole Instagram and be like, I have no idea what this person's like. Right. True. And it's very different when you're in person, you meet people and it's like authentic and you're like, oh, it's real. It's not so showy. It's not like it's not doctored up and all of this stuff. And so we we're trying to create like a, a place where like that identity could exist digitally. And so what we wanted to do is be able to allow people to you know get these badges and then authenticate themselves and their passions of those things in just like a non filtery non, you know, it's on your friend's feed kind of way just sort of like, hey, I I am a fan of, you know, Peloton or a fan of equestrian horse riding. And it's like, and here's like videos that are just like real life camera roll videos of um, to support that evidence and authenticate those passions. And it becomes like, there's like this kind of dream of all the things that you can get out of that, right? You're like, it becomes the last profile you need, right? It's like your real identity. You marry that up with uh, your professional resume. And it's like, I have a really good idea of what this person's like. Like, I know what this person's about. And that was the dream. That was sort of what we wanted to do is like create a human place for uh, in the digital world, right? Uh, a place to represent your humanity in a digital world in an authentic, you know, validated way. Um, that is incredibly big, incredibly audacious, and was incredibly hard. It's, it, it's obviously, it's difficult for lots of reasons. One is that, you know, in the Web3 hype, one of the big narratives was that people want to own their data. They want to own their identity. And, um, and that may be true or not, but it, it, the adoption rates of uh, not just at quiver, right. Which is a startup that's difficult for anybody to know about, but at any of these types of things, it's just not that great. So it suggests that people like actually don't care that much about <laughs> their data or their privacy. And indeed, like if you looked at behaviors across social media, you, you it, that might not be that surprising actually. Um, it's like a thing that we say, but then we don't do right. And, um, and, and that might may or may not be the case. That's just my experience of looking at, you know, the data and trying to understand the space. It seems like that, that may be the case. Um, and then secondly, it's like, you know, nobody really wants another social media type of site like that. It makes total sense. Like, so trying to get people to adopt both a web three thing and a new identity solution was maybe a bit uh, a bridge too far. I think uh, I think that the product was, was required a lot of like fundamental change to the way people operate on the internet. Um, and that I think going back, thinking about it, I would be like, well, that is gonna take a really long time. Even if you get it right, um, that's just gonna take a long time for to, to affect that kind of change um, societally. Um, so that's okay. Uh, uh, I'll just say this one last thing. The way we went about iterating through the product, though, was glorious. And um, like, I loved, like, we started out with like lots of different ideas of how to achieve this. And we sort of iterated 
like through it, like rolled it out, saw what people thought about it. What did you think about this? We pressure tested it. We fell in love with our ideas and then spent a week doing something else and then come back and like, you know, you shit all over your own ideas and you change it. And like, you really, I felt like we really pressure tested the way we built the product. And I really love that process. It takes a long time to build product that way. But um, like every single decision I felt like was validated and dr driven by the data and driven by our, our, our iterations through the product. I just, I was very proud of the way that we went about trying to build the product. Um, even if it like, is going to take a long time to get adopted mass market. <laughs> well, you definitely can be right. Uh, anyone that I've shown a cover to, you know, it's uh, especially the front end, you know, it's, it's just, if you open the, uh, the application, it's like, wow, like yeah. it, it's different, you know, um, it has that wow effect. And what I really liked is when you were, uh, mentioning before that adoption rate is one of the major challenges that just reminds me of, uh, everything or basically that the perception of risk, let's put it that way. When you look at uh, security or even your health and all these kind of things, you know, or you say you don't want a specific, uh, specific things to happen, but you still act against it, you know, just yeah. for the simple reason you don't really see the risk, you know, the thing happen happening in the future. And it's the same about data ownership, right? You want your privacy because you know that some companies or people might, you know, do something bad with it or sell it or spam you all the way through your life and all that kind of stuff, right? And maybe it's really, as you said, a mindset change that needs to happen or it's just ingrained in our human behavior. I don't know. but Yeah, I mean, like, you're exactly right. Like, data privacy is a big deal uh but it's a little bit like you know um eating your vegetables like you know that you got to do that but or you're gonna have like a lot of problems later on um but people don't want to do it right because it's not like it's not sexy it doesn't taste good it's like it, it's a thing you got to do and um and, there, and and i i think that the reason is is because people just really haven't felt any pain from the violations of data privacy that they are already undergoing People's data is constantly shuffling around. I remember when, like, you know, I'm, I'm 41. I remember when, you know, uh, like the AOL and the first internet, like, you know, commercial internets were coming out um, and the first credit card payments were, like, being suggested. People were losing their minds. Like, nobody would put their real name on the internet. Nobody was going to put their credit card on the internet. Like, that was crazy. And, and, and because people were concerned about like their identities being stolen and their credit cards being stolen and everything like that. And now you've sort of worked out so many of those kinks that people like, it's all seamless. It just is so convenient and so seamless and so like normalized that people just don't even realize what data is moving around, like from their location to their cell phone numbers and, and all the stuff, right? Like all of these, all of these identifiable things. And also, like, you know, it's a little bit of my job to build, you know, inference type systems. And people don't even realize, like, you just because certain things like about you are, uh, you know, passed over explicitly in a JSON package, it's like you can infer all of the things. Um, you know, you can link these things together and infer everything about people. Um, you know, buyer profiles and all of this stuff is, is like very mature, advanced technology. And the issue is that it's been used in such like a, a subtle way that I think that people don't realize that um, that their identity is already gone, like that their digital identity is like they're just it's already it's our everything's already out there. Like the LLMs are already training and using people's, you know, um, addresses and phone numbers as part of, the, you know, mm -hmm. all of this type of stuff. And um, it's just hasn't hit anybody so painfully directly that they they have to change the behavior. Um, but I think that when people see, if people see um, direct manipulation against them using their own data, that could spur different behavior. Um, but it has to be like almost so brazen that 
I, I just, it's hard for me to imagine that actually happening. Like it's already happening. Like 23 and me literally sells your DNA. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're like, this is all, this is all, I mean, if it doesn't, if that's not, if that's not enough for you to change your behavior, then like, what, what is it going to, what is it going to take? Well, that's a great question, right? Just think about, uh, these phone calls that some people are were getting from scammers already, you know, when your daughter or sister or whoever is calling you screaming for help, send yeah. me 5k or whatever. And, uh, with their voice and people know that I, I think it's, they, they possibly then still think, uh, well, the likelihood that this happens to me, it's yeah. again, far away. And that's probably the issue with our human brains, maybe, right? It's the same about everything else. If a war happens on the other end of the world, honestly, you care much less than if it happens uh, in the country next to you. That's just in our nature. And possibly that's, you know, I don't know, just an overall issue we have to tackle. But Yeah, I mean, in, in economics, we would call this a coordination failure right? Like you have a, you have basically a group of people that are all failing to protect each other. The group would be better off if we all did a thing, but because individually, like we don't feel the pain, we don't do the thing and now the group's worse off, right? So it's like, if, if you can, these are the spaces where like, you know, in Europe, you have uh, like all these regulations to try to try to solve that, that coordination failure problem. Um, and it's a tough balance because obviously that crushes a lot of innovation there too. So it's, it's a mixed bag, man. But, um, but yeah, I think that in general, like people will not change on this topic until they feel like direct pain. And, um, and I don't know, like to me, like you look at Instagram and, and like feed, like, like Instagram is a great example um, because uh, the company is just like, I think it's a diabolical thing. And, um, and like that feed, the order in which the feed comes in is psychologically damaging. Um, it is like the mental health of children growing up on that is absolutely awful and atrocious. And, um, it's down to a science and it, and I know the science of it. So it is like literally down like that process, the, 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 the removal of chronology of the, of the feed was all about this it was all about being able to push like images in a particular order because you can prime people and you can do things, you can create like induce feelings um, for the ad that is eventually coming or for the opportunity that's eventually coming. So it, it is not just like, Hey, I want to get an ad in front of a lot of eyeballs that are interested in, you know, going on vacation. It's that I want to make sure this person feels FOMO of all their friends that have been on vacation or other things. And then deliver the ad right like that is that is manipulative that's crazy. and it's dangerous and it's really dangerous and um and that is a form of people using your data against you that is a form of you know uh of um of data privacy uh violations i think uh it is not legally a form of that but like that is a real way in which you people are being manipulated and um and people's mental health is suffering from it and still nobody cares right like they would rather like doom scroll all day long so yeah, i think it's a really dangerous trend that we have to deal with wow. so i did i didn't know that they actually also you know adapt the post around it that that sounds just crazy to me but looking at that where do you think this all that might lead us to like what's the consequence could be the well consequence? Uh, well, I think so. I think I think that you'll probably end up getting some sort of regulation against um, against social media and things like this because of the mental health impacts that it's having. And like these findings are pretty conclusive as they're coming out now. But like that will grow to a fever pitch. Uh, you're looking at a generation that has grown up on that, right? And like high school, I don't think was easy for anybody. But it's like it is. You know, when you grow up under uh, under that sort of um, that sort of scrutiny and that sort of like sensitivity and that, that sort of like triggering feelings, right? Like the internet is like you go on like a comment feed; it's awful. <laughs> People are <laughs> Don't awful, do it. yeah. and it's crazy because like you go to a bar or you go to a you know a restaurant or you go to whatever you go to out to socially places, and people are not that way. 
it's like people just turn like or, or is there a selection bias to it or whatever but like like people are mean on the internet because the, the, they're anonymous and um in real life people are not like people are more restrained than that right people are nicer than this um in general you know not everybody but um and i think that like you put all of that on teenagers growing up and you know trying to sort out who they are and there's already a period of time in every adolescent that there's like we're sensitive to feedback during that time social feedback that's like part of our evolution and um and it's just a i think it's i think it's like a very damaging uh um like manipulation of that process and um so i do think that you'll end up seeing like a, a eventual like boiling over of that topic but I think in general, like where AI is going and all of this stuff is, um, I, I think it's away from this sort of like social media feed screen, like feeding anyways, like at some point, this is not that exciting. And people do wake up to the idea that like, this is not what real life is. Like these people are not that happy. Like that, like life is not like, I am not uniquely unfor unfortunate or something, right? Um, like people will find balance that way. And, um, and I think that they're not as interesting at that point. And then also, like, I think that there'll be different ways to target and advertise to people. And then you got to think like, ultimately, like I just gave a lecture, um, about AI and labor, um, up at Yale actually, and, um, to the economics program and like people are debating a lot about how AI and robotics is going to be changing the labor force, but it's, um, it, it's certain that like, it is going to be disrupted. The question is, okay, hey, we've had a lot of technological disruptions over the time, like we don't need to be Luddites about this or whatever, but you have to look across and say, well, what is different about this time um, that looks more like times in the past? Like, you know, people use the example of like the spinning Jenny or the textile industry removing, and then those people go get other jobs, but you're like, yeah, they, they went and got other jobs or the steel manufacturing or, the you know, um, uh, steam engines and all of that and like how that was a big boom for the economy and such because it created more jobs what do you think is going to happen here when labor is the thing at contention not a particular job where you can have flow into other places all jobs are reducing the like there is nowhere else to go what are you going to retrain them into the place that you would retrain them is also using robotics right so like all at once this is i think this is going to happen not really a doomsayer about it. I think it's a very positive thing, actually. I think it will move us, um, advance us into the future. But the population, as is, is it will be shocking for a generation or two. And um, and yeah, and so I think that like, but then you think, well, what is what is the world like in a world where labor is manufactured? Labor, not a product that a, a robot does. Labor itself is manufactured. People are going to have a lot more time on their hands. And, um, and I think that's an overall a good thing. I think you talk about how that can be sustainable or whatever, but, but I think that when people aren't having to spend half their life working, um, all the time or so many hours or whatever, um, what are they going to do? Like, I think going into digital worlds, um, games, like entertainment, uh, travel, I think these things become more and more important. And then I think also like the, like the, marrying that digital world with the physical world so that it's not just like, Hey, like I can actually go out in the world. Now I have time, I have space, I have capital to be able to go out and experience things and, and touch things and feel things and smell things and stuff like that. Um, I think people will do a lot more of that kind of stuff. And so I, I think social media, and this kind of stuff is like way less interesting in that sort of, in that sort of world. Oh, Ernesto, what do you have here? As you know, Ernesto is our chief meme officer at our company Rayfact. And yeah, we just launched a web-free card game for kids, two to five players plus 10 years old. And it's all about web-free, the risks, the opportunities, the challenges. And basically, you play this card game and have to collect Ernesto. Like how he's eating french fries, popcorn, sitting in a rocket, these kind of things. So it's really just a super playful way of engaging with the space and actually understanding how it works. So I would really appreciate if you check it out. Of course, uh, we earn some money with that, but every cent, every dollar goes directly towards the free, free workshops we do for children, 
We just had one in Bangkok uh, in November. So I hope you like it. And if you have some feedback, please leave it below. Well, sounds like a great world to live in if it works out from a political okay. <laughs> standpoint, right? But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I see, uh, certainly I think that the world will get better. Like if it got worse, people will, I mean, and there are times in history where life got worse, right? Like people kind of take it for granted that like life always gets better. And you're like, no, it doesn't. Like there's plenty of times in history where like the quality of life got worse for long periods of time. Um, and that may be the case, but then eventually it does get better because when things get worse, humans don't want things to be worse. They want things to be better. Mm -hmm. So they do, they like do things that make life better overall. Um, and, and that's why you have progress in the long run. So I, I think it's just, you have to have a longer term perspective about all of this stuff. Like in a thousand years, life will be much better. It will probably be like completely different in terms of, you know, um, AI robotics and all of this stuff will be integrated into us. We'll probably be another species type of thing, that kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. it will be better. Like you'll pro progress will move forward if we don't nuke each other yeah. or, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, Eliezer is not right, and uh, the robots don't just kill us all. <laughs> There's that's that too. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of data, um, let let's go a little bit in the past. Um, we talked a lot about the future now. Um, you know, I just want to avoid that people get like, oh, oh my gosh, like, but. You worked with Ray Dalio in the past, right? At Bridgewater yeah. and many people know his public persona. And of course you can't go into details, totally, totally acknowledge that, but I would love to understand a little bit, like how was it work, working there? Like what were your experience and yeah, what did you learn? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, so overall, like I, you know, there's a book out now. So a lot of this is like public stuff. And uh, I think, uh, I think the book is like, like, like all good pieces of entertainment embellished a lot. Right. But, um, but I think that my experience in Bridgewater was great. Like uh, I, I learned in some sense how to structure my thinking. And um, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I feel like, you know, um, I, 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 I came from Bridgewater. I got recruited while I was in my PhD program and, um, and I did a lot of stuff in my PhD program. Like I, I had a weird dissertation that was like half, it was like two parts. Uh, one part was on nuclear fusion and another part was on cancer research. Like I did all kinds of, I invented all kinds of weird stuff. Like I had, um, an NSF grant. And so I had a lot of freedom, um, to do what I wanted to do there. I worked in neurosurgery for a while. Um, I did like a bunch of random stuff. And, and I think, and I was, able, I was always able to like go into a field and innovate. And, um, but it was, I think prior to Bridgewater, it was like a cloud. Like my, my thinking was more like cloud shaped, if you will. <laughs> it was just like, I, if I try to draw the connections between things, it was like very abstract and like a colorful cloud. And after Bridgewater, like, it's sort of like the, I was able to like clear fog and I can like learn how to like break down my thinking and, um, and structure it so that I could synthesize my thoughts better and, um, and, and evaluate risk better, frankly, uh, because when you're, when it's a cloud, it's like a lot of vibe, right? It's a lot of like, oh, I think this is like, this is innovative, right? But but then you can't really think about like one, how to execute it is like a kind of a random walk. If you're, if you don't have a good structure Two, you can't really evaluate the risk. And the most important thing, which I learned from Ray specifically is that I can't evaluate why I got it wrong. And so the most important thing about systematic thinking is that um, when you build system, when you build a system that is like, I am going to do X, Y, Z, it's like the scientific method. That is why we do it is so that I have a hard structure that has lots of control variables and everything. And I have a hard process in which I'm going through so that when I see the outcome, I can compare it to my expectation and the difference becomes quantifiable against the process that I just ran. And if you do not have systematic thinking, like what the hell are you doing? You're just doing random things. And, and you can't learn as fast because you won't be able to identify what would you change? Right. What like 
why'd you get it wrong? Like, I, I have no idea. I did a, I just did a bunch of stuff. You're like, yeah, it's not good. It's not good enough. So what I learned from Bridgewater was like, one, how to hold a high bar on, on um, rigorous thinking. And two was how to be a rigorous thinker myself. Um, and working with Ray was like, I mean, it was, it was a real joy and pleasure. It was like with everybody there, everybody, um, you know, there was a definite type that comes out of Bridgewater and um, it's a type that I appreciate enormously. It's not, it is a hard place to work. It is um, challenging. It's not for everybody, as they say, blah, blah, blah. But like for people that want to, to be the best that they can actually be, it's like an iron sharpens, sharpens iron thing. Like you got to cut out the fluff. You got to cut out the fluff. Like it's a hard place. If I do something wrong, you just need somebody to say explicitly, you got this wrong. This is what's wrong. Um, and if you could just get past that, that emotional reaction that you would have, like when people tell you that your thinking is bad, um, you can get on with the work of making your thinking better. And, uh, and it's just a really, it's a really rich place to work. It's really, that, that is like, it, it, I will forever be grateful about learning that skill. It has helped me enormously. And then Ray specifically, I mean, I did get the, the pleasure of being able to work directly with Ray. Um, and I, like, I love Ray because Ray's like, uh, he's, he is like his public persona is actually his persona. That is who he is. He's, he's not, he's not two characters. Um, which I, I think, you know, for better or worse is like a extremely admirable attribute about somebody. Um, he is incredibly systematic. Uh, and so he is actually that way and it can come across, I think, um, kind of robotic and a little bit cold, but it's not, it, it's, it's disciplined right it's it's um rigorous it's like it's transparent because that's the other thing too about systematic thinking is if you claim that you want to be transparent you have to be a systematic thinker because otherwise what are you communicating like how do you communicate a non-systematic idea of like what your intentions are if you can't be clear about like what are the variables that you're considering how are you thinking about them etc cetera, etc cetera. like i think people think that they are being transparent by um by like give it like telling people their vibes and shit but you're like that's not transparency like transparency is about telling me how you came to the decisions that you came to what are the things you consider like how do you think it's all connected like what are your motivations all of that stuff has to be part of transparency and um and it requires rigorous thinking so, yeah, so I, I, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time there. I also got to work with Dave Ferrucci there who had a big impact on, um, you know, the way I think about AI and the way I think about knowledge representation and sort of like the old um, semantic reasoning techniques that I think fell out of vogue have suddenly become like so important as people realize that you can't just like throw more data at the problem and get better results. It's like actually less data, more semantic reasoning gets you better results, right? And um, and so I think like, I'm excited about this, the period that we're in with AI for exactly that reason. Like all of those techniques are coming up, coming back up, married with the new, the new you know, um, embedding models and this kind of neural networks and this kind of deep learning stuff. And you're bringing these two together and you're like, this is actually probably going to blow our minds. And like, there's gonna be a lot of exciting stuff. And I got to, you know, um, get some foundational learning from both Ray, not on AI from Ray, but just, thinking and epistemology and that kind of stuff from Ray and, uh, and AI from, uh, from Ferrucci. It was, I was pretty blessed. That's awesome. Is, is there something you are most excited about? Like something that you would like? I am to most see? excited about AI robotics. I know I just painted a doom story <laughs> about it, but um, like, so the thing that people I think do not write about or talk about enough is like, if you think about what, like, all, you know, last year, the, you know, GPT came out and it kind of blew away people that were like, oh, crap. Like, if you just stack more Transformers, like, you get, <laughs> like, you get, you get this magic to come out. Like, that was pretty surprising to me. Like, I didn't think that that was actually going to happen. And so that was pretty shocking. But when you really, like, tear it back, you're like, what is this thing good for? This thing is really good at translating. So, um, you know, English to Spanish pretty good right um but also like english to code english to mathematics english to python right and um 
And then I think more importantly, you're getting to a space where you're like English to computational language, right? This is the Wolfram Alpha type of stuff um, or Stephen Wolfram type stuff. But then you go from computational language to robotic language. And there's a ton of great work being done at Berkeley and MIT and Carnegie Mellon and other places um, around how to teach robot. Actually, Elon's robot is based off these, these principles as well, but um, how to teach robots um, not from the, not from uh, like codifying knowledge inside of them or, or, or procedure, but from giving them a ability to see or hear other things and then, and then build the robotics that can do those things. And, that is like you have this unbelievable translation engine that could do that and then if you separately think about like okay well what have robotics been up to like boston dynamics has basically been doing the same sort of uh um like versatility um improvements to robots so they have like now degrees of freedom of motion in physical space you have degrees of freedom of thinking in in embedding space or latent space you're going to bring these two things together and like i think we are probably five years or so away from general purpose robots that change the economy dramatically um you don't need a robot uh, right now you need a robot to wash the dishes that can only wash dishes. It can't go change your tire. Um, that makes robots very expensive. Just economically, it's not a that's not a practical way to, you know, mm. build robotics unless you're a giant manufacturing company. But if you have a general purpose robot, the same robot that washes your dishes can go change your tire, can uh, go mow the lawn, um, you know, can go fold the laundry. Like this is wild. Like this is that will drive the price of robots, general purpose robots, to the floor. And it's scary only in the sense that what you're doing there is manufacturing, not a product, which is currently everything in the world that is manufactured is a, is a product. You manufacture a solution or a service or whatever. This is the manufacture of labor, of labor. Mm -hmm. So if you think about like the Cobb Douglas, like I have, uh, I'm trying to make production and I have capital and I have labor to substitute. This is like, I only need labor now. Or rather, I, I only need capital and it removes my labor. Like I don't need labor because my capital is can do my labor. And so it's a complete hard substitution. And that is a wild, wild world that we're about to go into. And so I think like, you know, you, the, the writing's on the wall. You look at um, the labor market is unbelievably tight. You can't get fast food workers. You can't get construction workers. You can't get transport drivers. Also, most of those like, you know, blue collar type of jobs are um, are worked in the United States anyways by the boomer population that's about to retire. Like who's going to drive the trucks? Who's going to go do the welding? Like you're it's a perfect storm. You have no labor supply and you have an opportunity to build cheap general purpose robots. Like that won't unionize on you. That's pretty good. Like you're about to have a convolution over the next five to 10 years that is going to fundamentally changed labor and i think permanently crazy because pe people are saying this about robots for quite some time right and it absolutely makes sense right every everyone has seen those crazy robots from boston dynamics and so on yeah um but five years really yeah five to ten years i think yeah, yeah. because the okay. the main problem is is the programming of the robots procedures and i'm saying the the gpt advancements are allowing you to at, at the rate of improvements of these types of systems you are able to translate natural language into computational language that powers the robot and i think five to ten years you will probably have a general purpose robot that you could just speak to it and show it how to wash the dishes and now it doesn't need to be programmed to wash the dishes it could just you just taught it like you would teach a child right alan turing i know we gotta go but alan turing had a great quote he only wrote a few papers actually one of the papers and so this was at a time when like expert systems in the you know 80s were like super popular 70s stuff like that and it, but the concept of an expert system goes way back way back right and so alan turing had this whole concept of or whole discussion on expert systems and he's like you know instead of building an AI system or you can call it that, but instead of building a thinking machine that, um, you know, is trained like an expert, maybe you should build a thinking machine that's trained like a child. And then you raise the child to be an expert. That is more true than any other like, you know, prophecy and AI right there. It's like, that's, what's going to happen. You don't train expert systems. You train children 
and then you teach them to learn and then they become experts. Well, I thinking about this, I can see a whole industry emerging uh, just of sec secondhand robots that have been taught certain kind of things. And the, well, yeah. that that's, if that happens, that's really wild. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. There's, there's a, uh, there's a company or a research project happening. I think also at Berkeley that is, um, is training, um, is training robots on how to solve real life problems. Actually, NVIDIA is doing it. It's training robots how to solve uh, real life problems from simulations. Like they're not even having to do the problems in real life. They solve the problem in simulation world and then they have the ability to solve it here. Like that is full blown matrix style, right? So <laughs> um, it's a very exciting. And I'm saying like, this is happening all within the last year. So you're like, dude, you're hitting, like the thing about, you know, exponential curves is that it's not humans think linearly. Mm -hmm. So by the time you realize you're on an exponential curve, it's over. So things you think like are five years away are probably here in two years. So I'm probably underestimating my time, if anything, saying five to 10 years. But I think that just because manufacturing plants of robots take time to stand up, like probably mm -hmm. roughly about five years, that's basically what I think is happening. I think that um, and, and if you indeed, if you look at like manufacturing trends, China is invested more into general purpose robots over the last couple of years into manufacturing plants, the United States, Japan um, um, and, and in Europe as well. But like all of that is happening, like all of a sudden there's a bunch of plants spinning up to build general purpose robots. And it's probably because they know the software, the tech is coming by the time this, these manufacturing plants get stood up. So pretty good. Pretty good signal, I think. Well, okay. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, yeah, a little stunned to speak. <laughs> you know, it's. I always thought robots are far away. You know, like um, I see all these videos, but it's. I just deleted it from my radar a little bit, to be honest, right? Because yep. it was just too obvious for me that we're far away from everything like that you see in the movies, uh, actual general purpose robot. Um, but I have one last question for you, Joe, if that's okay. And sure. we have talked about a lot of super interesting topics today, but are there three things that you would like the audience to remember? So if you're an entrepreneur, I don't know if I can have three things, but if you're an entrepreneur, I would say the most, like the most, important principle I am myself feeling and meditating on is like, um, is, is that is the grit concept It's just, it's just keep going. There's a great quote, I think it was by, I don't know who it was another physicist, somebody but it was like, I think it might've been Einstein, but it was like, uh, it's not that I see further. It's just that I stick with the problems longer. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's a superpower. It's like, you don't need to be a genius. Like you need to stick with the problem. Um, you will, you will, by the time you solve it, right, it takes a long time to solve these uh, any sufficiently difficult problem, then you look like a genius. But like it, it is all like retroactive or retro retrospective, like that way. It is it is grit that makes geniuses, right? Um, so just sticking with problems, believing in it, just keeping it going, like that is by far and away the most important aspect to me right now. Um, two would be, um, I would say like doing like uh, my quiver reflections would be um things take a uh, things take a long time we are everybody knows that anyways like things just tend to take much much longer than you think that they will anyways um and even i think a great idea like i think quiver is a really great idea the adoption rate is going to be slow because the change um that you're requiring of people is large and so it doesn't mean that it's like uh, um so you got to understand if it, are you working on a problem like that if you're working on a problem like that um it's going to take a long time and you have to consider that as a business standpoint like do you have the capital for it like what are the milestones you could break down that you could then fund it that way especially going into the next five years where i think um venture capital is going to be writing much smaller checks in a higher interest rate environment the model just doesn't really work as well for venture um, venture actually in general is not that great but as an asset class but um and from a risk adjusted 
uh, perspective, but it's getting, it's going to be much harder. So the checks are going to be smaller. So how are you going to do problems? How are you going to do projects that take longer? Like you're going to need to get to profitability faster. You're going to need to show progress faster. That means smaller milestones, more deterministic, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, development paths, et cetera. So I think that that's, that's a really important thing over the next five years too. And then um, third, I just say like, you know, I think um, building companies is extremely difficult. Everybody knows that. It is also a like ginormous privilege. It is it is an incredible privilege to be able to work in tech and entrepreneurship and be able to chase kind of crazy ideas. Um, and so I think just like remaining grateful, even though we went through, you know, the last two years have been pretty brutal for a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs. But um, it is. It is really, I, I think, just reminding ourselves to be grateful that, like, this is really cool work. Like, we get to work on really neat things. We get to affect change in a really meaningful way. And, um, yeah, that'll, like, keep you motivated. Cool stuff. Hey, thanks, mate, really, for your time. Thanks brother. a lot. And, of course. Yeah. Good talking. Likewise, likewise. All right, buddy. I'll see you soon. I hope you liked the episode. I did for sure. Um, I think my shocked face sometimes uh, was really difficult to not see. And yeah, please leave your feedback in the video uh, below, basically in the comment section. Hit subscribe, engage with the video, anything helps. Thank you very much. And yeah, was, I'm, I'm still baffled, like if that's the right word. Wave Act. The web-free software company that understands what you want.